This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, here we are, you guys. Once again, everyone talks to Liz, and I'm so thrilled you're tuning in. You know, we talk a lot about tech and big tech, etc. When I describe a company as a tech giant, I mean, what pops into your head? I'm assuming probably computers, coding, servers, artificial intelligence, microchips, you know, Intel, Apple, Microsoft, etc. But what about when I say tech entrepreneur? Maybe you picture something that's similar to that. I mean, uh, uh, somebody with a computer science degree, uh, a pro computer programmer, engineer, software creator. But would your mind ever go to somebody with maybe a history degree, uh, a board member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, an expert in Greek language and Latin? You know, I mean, right? Probably not. Well, Mark Foster, head of IBM Global Services, is that guy. He took the road less traveled, but it still led him to a tech giant nonetheless. IBM, where today he runs the huge division of more than 240,000 employees. You know, sometimes mastering the pivot and seeing the world through a different lens can really give you perspective you need to succeed in business and and wherever you want to go, if you just go in a different direction first. But don't hear this from me. Let's hear it from Mark. We welcome Mark Foster from IBM. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Liz, great to be with you. Great to be with you. Okay, I, I just have to say this because I'm fangirling here about the Royal Shakespeare <laughs> Company. You're a board member, right? Uh, I actually, I've just I've st- stepped off the board after my board membership there. I was there, I timed out on my board membership there, but I'm actually a member of the, the Royal Shakespeare America's board. Uh, oh. I'm over here, so I, which is a, a board that supports the Royal Shakespeare's work back in the UK. So I'm, that's where I am right now. Brilliant. You know, um, I'm fangirling because my mom is a formerly trained theatre Shakespearean actress from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. Rada. You have to say it like that with the twirling R, right? You do indeed. Exactly. Well, no, it's a, well, it's a fantastic, it's been a fantastic part of my life being involved with the Royal Shakespeare Company and indeed with, with theatre in the round. In fact, I, I did actually spend a lot of time even at school being a, a stage lighting director. I was in charge of stage lighting in my school for about for about three years at one point so it was a uh, an early exposure to the theater never in front never never actually walked the boards but actually did everything else behind the scenes <laughs> yeah walking the boards is is the big moment right but you know lighting you got nothing without lighting mark you grew up the son of two artists what kind of art were they in tell me about your folks and and growing up in in the life that you led yeah, well, my, my mum was a painter, a painter and drawer, actually. Uh, and my dad was a graphic artist. In fact, my, my, my dad um, went on to become the head of graphic design at the BBC, in fact, um, in his early his career. And wow. so, but there was a time when television graphic design was all done by hand. And so I grew up in a house that was full of bits of coloured cardboard, double-sided sticky tape and things like that, which were part of creating 
all the things that were going on on the, on the screen in those days. And obviously my father then grew up to run the division uh, in the BBC at the time that, that did all of that. So I, but, uh, so I had an opportunity, I guess, I must admit, to grow up in a house that had you know, a lot of sort of artistic thinking around it, but also an interesting connection to business insofar as, you know, in the end of the day, my father was running a, a decently sized part of the business of the BBC at the time when he when he got into that. So it was a, a mix of those uh, experiences that I had the opportunity to uh, to be exposed to. I must admit that the, the true artistic gene went with my, my younger brother, who is a fabulous, um, a natural artist. My, my creativity was sort of limited to sort of creating things of different natures. So I grew up, you know, creating board games for myself and, and writing books, um, uh, small books for myself and my brother and my family, and even wrote my own newspaper for a while. I, I, I created it around our house at the time. So those are the things I grew up. Those are things I grew up doing. Back at my creative line took a completely different route uh, to many others in that respect. Did you, did you convince the, the cat and the dog to read your newspaper? Uh, that's, what I, that's what I basically had to do. It had a, it had a very small, very small readership of me, my mum, and my brother, basically. You know, it almost sounds really, really enchanting. Um, I, I, I would imagine, though, with your dad, that eventually, when things computerized. You got to watch it all in action, and and you probably got to see the early forms of computers, right? Very early forms, exactly. I mean, obviously, there were some some of the very early forms were beginning when my my father actually he retired quite early, and in fact became an antique dealer. And so my parents became antique dealers for the next almost twenty five years of their of their lives. So they had a second career as antique dealers. And uh, so, but he as he was as he was retiring, obviously uh, the first beginning of, of technology coming into the world of, of graphics. And obviously, you know, I, I did keep up with that somewhat through his friends who stayed in their business after that. So got some exposure over that period of time. You went to Oxford, which of course is the best of the best. But to study ancient Greek, this is fascinating to me. Yes, well, I, as I say, I, I, I must admit, I mean, when I, was at, when I was at school, some of the few things I was really good at at school was, was ancient languages that no one spoke anymore. Uh, so <laughs> I, I actually, so I, but I was, I was from, the age of, from the age of 11 and 12, I, I, all I, I, I was very, very interested in, 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 in obviously ancient history and, and languages and literature that came from that, all the other historians and the, the great playwrights of, of ancient Greece. And I must admit, I grew up, you know, just really enjoying that that whole area. So when it came to actually looking for what I was going to do as a degree, um, in fact, there was no no choice about it. I'd spent my years of 16, 17, 18 studying, solely studying Greek, Latin and ancient history. And I went on to Oxford to, to study what was called greats, which was a four-year course that focuses precisely on all of that. And so I spent four years uh, at University College Oxford, you know, uh, getting a degree in, in, in all of that. I want our listeners to understand where this is all leading. I mean, you were you were learning and studying languages, and of course, computers have their own language. But getting into the computer realm happened, it feels like almost serendipitous for you. Can you explain how you came to go to a job fair where you found a job that involved computers? Yes, well, I, I did go to a job fair at, at Oxford where obviously all the big companies came through to, to, to arrange jobs. And one of those was actually then the management consulting division of then called Arthur Anderson. And uh, they were what became eventually Anderson Consulting and then Accenture as organization uh, over time. And they were, they were saying that they were prepared to take anybody from any background and train them in this growing a new world of technology and computing that was out there. And I must admit, I was... I was actually intrigued because I thought that, frankly, 
the other paths that were in front of me with my degree and my background, but which one I was interested in in terms of becoming a teacher. I actually had a job all lined up to go and become a, a classics teacher um, at, a, at a school. Um, uh, but I, I, I thought to myself, actually, this sounds really, really more intriguing, more stretching, more, more, more different. And I also could see the world was, this technology thing was about to become quite big. It's 19, 1983 now, and um, you know, tech is beginning to appear on the horizon more visibly in our lives. And so I, 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 I was lucky enough to get a job there. And within a month, I was in Chicago being trained to code in COBOL, uh, which I did find actually had some very interesting uh, similarities to, to trying to decline and conjugate, um, you know, Latin, Latin verbs and, and nouns, because it's, it's just as unforgiving. It's just as unforgiving. It, getting an ending wrong in, in a, Latin, a Latin noun is just as unforgiving as, as not putting the syntax right in your COBOL statement. So actually, the, 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 the care you take around your dactylic hexameter scanning is just the same as the care you have to take on, on understanding how to use working storage. Well, you know, except that there are, there are IT guys who can help you, but with ancient Greek, it's... And, 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 who knows? I mean, Julius Caesar isn't around. I mean, thank God to, to to help us all. But you spent 27 years at Arthur Anderson, a lot of different roles. What bridge did you cross to get to IBM eventually? That's an interesting jump to go from Arthur Anderson to IBM. I moved out of the world, if you like, of, of coding to the world of, of, of strategic consulting, the world of change management consulting expertise in certain industries and then I started running large parts of, of the of the of the business as time went on uh, and ended up you know, I was on the management committee I guess for the last sort of 10 years mm-hmm. I was at um uh, at Accenture and I retired from that actually in um in 2011 um and uh, and then sort of started thinking about frankly enjoying my enjoying my life doing other things so I joined the board of, of several several companies some of which were in the technology arena or related areas um, uh, but my main interest, actually, I joined, I helped the, the, the UK government. I became one of the four commissioners that were put in place to oversee the UK's global aid budget. So, in fact, I spent four years um, traveling the world, uh, frankly, ending up in clinics and under trees and schools around, around, around the world, understanding whether the UK's aid was making um, a difference or not. Uh, wrote about 40 reports that were public reports and reported into parliament and stood in select committees discussing the impact of aid, which is a fascinating uh, exposure to another whole world. And frankly, had not thought about um, going back into a full-time role. Uh, but I had made the terrible error of one of the boards I was on was a headhunting company called Hydrogen Struggles. And <laughs> I rather, know it. Oh, rather they're too, they're rather, the biggest for the big, right? <laughs> exactly. And rather too many people there knew, knew of me. Uh, and so when um, when IBM was looking for someone to, to take on the uh, the, the part of their services business. Um, my name was mentioned to them, and um, I was invited to a breakfast with Ginny Rometty, who was the CEO at the time. And within four weeks, I had um, given up all my boards, moved myself and my wife across the um, across the Atlantic, and, um, and and settled into what at the time was running running what was then you know, the the global business services part of IBM, uh, which was uh, you know a pretty interesting moment of my life. It's fair to say. Would you say that you had any angst or or nervousness about it? I mean, this is a big different move. But but part of what we find with all of our everyone talks to Liz superstars like yourself is that 
Opportunities fly past you in packages you might not recognize, but you need to grab them. I would absolutely view this as one of those situations. It's interesting in terms of both the timing. It just happened to come along when my young, our youngest son had just finished school uh, and was therefore we were able to, you know, frankly, you know, leave him and his brother back in the UK and, and take a role like this. So it was a moment in time. It was also a role that was actually quite shaped like my background had been at my role at Accenture, though on a different scale and nature, but I knew the different elements of it. Therefore, I had some sense that it was something that I would be able to do and could succeed at. Um, but it was, it was though, fundamentally a, a major leap of faith, both for my wife and I to, you know, to, to, to transport ourselves uh, to, to live abroad and work abroad for the first time fully uh, over my career, but also to enter into a, into a very different culture and organization where I knew I was coming into a very senior role, but I, but I, but I really, I didn't have the background. All my prior work life had been in a place that I'd grown up in over several decades. So stepping into a new organization um, with a different culture, learning how, how to get things done, that was a big, a big leap of faith. Uh, but I think, again, I, I think you, you really do have to seize these opportunities when they come along, because the, if, if, the, if the circumstances are right, the opportunity to do something that generally stretches you and is going to you know, get the whole gray matter functioning again in new ways, <laughs> I think is really important. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Was there a moment where you felt like you had to fake it till you made it? That's the issue. I mean, I, I got recruited by CNBC back in 1998 out of local news where I was covering murders and drug busts and explosions and, and you know, chocolate festivals to, to talk about the stock market, about which I knew just about nothing. But I figured, let me fake it till I make it. Uh, it's not so easy. You, you do stumble into some manholes, do you not? You do, you do. I mean, let's be clear. I think first. I mean, first of all, I think that the main thing I knew I was going deeper into was was were areas of technology that I maybe hadn't touched so much. Though I'd, I'd I had been you know, in and around technology now for you know two or three decades, so I was I was actually in a, in a zone that I at least you know knew the zip code of what I, what we were talking about. I, it did involve, frankly, you know, bring, building on the curiosity that I'd had, frankly, from that. That that boy writing a newspaper for his um his mother and father, uh, mm. you, you build on that and that curiosity, it, it leads you into understanding new areas like artificial intelligence, like blockchain, like quantum computing, all of the things that actually are, are some of the, you know, the new areas that have evolving over recent times, and 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 that actually I think is something that you know, it's not a function of a case of faking it to make it. It's actually a function of being, you know, I think always appropriately 
humble while you're, on the journey, while you're on the journey of learning those yes. things, while also trying to bring the expertise you do have to bear around the areas that, you're, that are your more comfortable um, uh, part of your background. And do you think that when you did serve for four years as the commissioner for the UK's global aid and serving in some of the poorest areas of the world, from the Congo to Somalia to Bangladesh, that those experiences where you were, I'm sure, learning every single second of your waking day uh, helped you stretch that muscle by the time you got to IBM? And what lesson should that be to our listeners? I, I think absolutely it stretched, it stretched me. It stretches, it stretches every single, every single um, sense of your body is stretched by those kind of experiences. And, and, I, and I think that was important. I also think, though, it, it puts everything into perspective. And I'd say that's a sort of a line, a line of sight from actually my time, my degree in my degree in classics, through to that experience um, with the aid commission, through to taking on any kind of big leadership role, is is a recognition of putting things into perspective, understanding what is important, putting things in the context of the arc of of time, as opposed to responding always to the short term, immediate, near term stimulus that are around you, because you recognise. That there are, first of all, there are, these, there are bigger issues in play uh, that, that put things in perspective when, a, when an issue lands on your desk. Uh, it also makes you recognise that you know, there's going to be a longer arc of time before or after where at the moment you're in right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and certain things that seem really important this morning won't be important by this evening, but frankly, it definitely won't be important by next week and certainly won't be important in three quarters time and probably definitely not important in 10 years time. So these are things I think that are really important for us to understand as leaders that while you're always balancing the need to be responsive and immediate in what you do, I think seeing things in a bigger pattern, I think, is a really important thing. And, and, and even actually when you're trying to talk about something like technology or, or transformational change in a company, which I do now, I think we see it over the, the arc of transformation that's going on. So as I think now about the advice we're giving companies about how they respond in a post-COVID environment. Yeah. Even before COVID, we were talking to them about the impact of technology on transforming their business, uh, of, of how it was stepping up. Every company was becoming a technology company. There was a real move for it being something that was on the edge of your digital transformation going deeper into the company. Hmm. You now look and see that although there's been acceleration during this last short period of time, um, which short period of 18 months of sitting in our, in our, in our kitchens working, but now looking out and seeing that, in fact, it's going to be another you know, decade of transformation in front of us um, where all this stuff is going to come to maturity. And I think it's being able to understand that overall picture that I think is something you just learn. So you've got a couple hundred thousand employees under you and or working with you. What has changed forever when it comes to the workplace post-COVID? I'm really interested in, in hearing the answers from people like you. Well, first of all, I mean, I do think that, that 240,000 people, you know, first of all, responded, you know, incredibly well to what was a, clearly a once, you know, once a lifetime experience of suddenly finding themselves having to transform where they were working from, how to support clients while dealing with everything else around their lives that were, has been in turmoil. And frankly, there are still large parts of my teams around the world that are going in and out of lockdowns and still dealing with very major issues as they operate in places where the vaccinations haven't yet landed where there's still lockdowns occurring. Uh, so it's been a, I think it's been a world where people have had to show unbelievable resilience, adaptability, just to just to do that. And I think that frankly, 
the first thing for the teams was to make sure that they felt that we had their back around that, to make sure that, you know, that we were looking about their well-being, and that we did make some pledges about how to work with people when the rest of their lives were still having to be handled around their workday in different ways. I think some of that thought process now has to carry itself forward, because I do think that people are going to be in this hybrid working model more than they were before. It will be the case that my consultants will not be getting on a plane every 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 Monday morning to fly to a client, to Agreed. fly back on a Thursday evening to work from home. They're, they're, they're not going to do that. They're going to do it. They'll, they'll do it some of the time. They have to do it some of the time because I believe that client intimacy and being close to your clients and working on certain kinds of creative activity absolutely require you to be in the same physical space. But a lot of things don't. And we've learned, in fact, that our teams can perform amazing work virtually from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world as part of our, our approach to what we call dynamic delivery and our garage model. And I think the learning that that brings to us and the comfort that our clients have, that they haven't got to see and touch all the people that are working for them to know that the work is going on or that the deliverables are being created or that value is being created. I think that's something that we should now take advantage of to create perhaps more balance in the, in the lives of all the people that the work mm. work for us, while also recognizing though that we need to be careful that there are ditches on all sides of this. There's definitely ditches with regard to you know, mental health, of loneliness, of isolation for those who find it harder to not be part of a natural social environment in the workplace. And I think we've got to recognize therefore there's a real mix of reactions that are going to go on. Different roles are going to have to be done in different ways, but I don't think it will ever go back to being how we were before. I, I, I agree. Could not agree more. I really feel like there are things that will revert, but others that will change forever. And it's called evolution. We do evolve when we learn from these things. Speaking of evolution, do you have the next evolution in your world, in your life? I mean, is there another reinvention of Mark Foster coming? Well, there may or may not be another reinvention down the track. Uh, right now, uh, clearly, the focus is on on driving the growth of of what is uh, of the services business in IBM, which is actually at a really interesting you know, junction. I mean, we, I, I genuinely believe, as we look out at what all these organisations around the world are now facing in terms of the degree of change they're trying to bring about, the speed and certainty of that change they want to go through, they're going to need help to do that. Help with the technology help with the execution, help with the creativity about how to really get the most out of that change process. So I think we're in, we are, I think, as I say, on the, on the cusp of a, of like a golden decade for, for businesses like ours in helping organizations go on those journeys of, of transformation. And I, that's, an exciting, that's an exciting prospect to be part of. Uh, and I think, obviously, as I say, IBM itself is continuing uh, to reinvent itself. Uh, the focus that's come since Arbin, the CEO, has, has focused in on, on the, the, the difference we can make, particularly around transformation related to AI, transformation related to the whole power of the hybrid cloud as a way of empowering and changing companies. But, but in the end of the day, those technologies need people to help them be applied. And that's really the part of the business that I'm excited about leading is, is getting the people trained up, brought on board from around the world to work with clients wherever they may be to get the value out of all this technology at, at the end of the day. And so that's that's kind of plan A. In in, in the future, who can tell? I mean, I, I deal I do still you know find you know many other interests. I'm I'm, I'm still still fascinated by the theatre. I'm still you know a, a, fa a fanatical photographer. I love travel, um, and I love uh, you know see, seeing different parts of the world. In fact, the part of my job I'm missing most is 
is actually being with my teams around the world because you know, this kind of leadership role, indeed the leadership role I had at Accenture before I retired, was all about global leadership of teams and meeting clients and being, being in the field. And uh, the piece of this job that's been hardest for me over this last uh, 18 months is being you know, here, trapped in one place, trying to inspire, motivate, connect with, understand people and clients from afar. And I think that's um, something that, again, back to my experience of working for the commission, when I first signed up for the job, they told me it would be 40 days done from London, reviewing materials seen by others. Uh, it became 100 days a year, all in the field, all personal experience wow. to underpin the reports that we wrote. And that, to me, talks to actually what I, what I, how I like to lead, how I like to feel um, able to connect with what's going on, understand what's going on, and then be able to be effective. So I do find that piece um, missing. And, and, I, and I imagine, therefore, that whatever I choose to do next will have a lot of that getting out and about um, for as long as I'm able to get out and about for. Oh, it sounds like you've got a lot more living to do uh, by choice, certainly. Mark, it's great to talk to you. Before we go, do you have a favorite Shakespearean play that that speaks to you from a a life standpoint or anything like that. I, I, I'll tell you, you know, I used to study these a lot, especially I, I got yelled at in iambic pentameter by my mother growing up because, you know, being the Shakespearean uh, expert there. But Richard III, to me, just is is such a human story of drama and life and pride and hubris and fatal flaws, et cetera. But is there one that you like in particular? I find you know, Richard II actually is the play that I find <laughs> uh, most, most compelling. Um, mainly again, though, for the same ideas that it talks to the issues of hubris, the, the issues of actually recognizing as a leader that you, while you may think you're the main man, there's an awful lot else going on. And frankly, being able to recognize the reality of that, be self-reflective, and understand that the path to damnation or trouble lies down uh, missing that is really key. So for me, um, I think it's always being very self-aware of yourself and, and frankly not getting too big for your boots is a pretty good lesson for us all to learn. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Let's end it at that. Mark, what an honor and a pleasure to hear from somebody who works in a huge corporation like IBM in technology but with such a renaissance outlook on life. I think that that has, has made you a success. And I hope that our listeners really seize upon that and understand that sometimes when you go in a completely different direction, it will still lead you to where you thought you wanted to be in the first place. Thank you so much for joining Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Liz. Oh, it's great. Terrific. And, and to all of you, thank you for tuning in. So appreciate when you seize upon these stories, listen to them, and hopefully take them and run with them toward your goals. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.